For the past several episodes, I've really focused on the concept of the person of the Holy Spirit. And I've said that the Holy Spirit provides us with a greater focus on Jesus, provides us with power to witness, to share on his behalf. And here's really the idea that I want to land on with this episode, increased intimacy with the Lord. Now, you may want to go back and rewind and catch the previous few episodes because they're all about the role of really the Holy Spirit and this concept that really catches some people off guard called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Before going forward, what I want to do is I want to step back a little bit and I want to show you how in line the things I've communicated to you are. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you back to a deliberate and safe process of studying scripture that I learned back when I was in seminary. Now, here's what I was taught to do. I I was really encouraged to do this, especially when approaching new ideas. It's really just a three-step, two-step process here. First of all, you read the text, the biblical text for yourself, and determine what you think and feel that the Holy Spirit reveals. That's really what I've been doing in the previous episodes. I've told you what I think that the Bible says. Second, then you go and read other commentaries to see what the Holy Spirit has already taught others. A wise professor that I had explained that God wasn't likely to give me or any other student in that classroom some new thing that 2,000 years of the brightest and devout Christians had missed. The professor encouraged each of us to read numerous Christian authors that we respected from a variety of denominational backgrounds so as not to fall into one theological box. That is really what I want to do in the first few pages here of notes that I have that I'm going to share really in this episode. And and, and then third, he encouraged us, hey, in, in light of what you feel that the Holy Spirit has shown you, and then second, in light of what the Holy Spirit has revealed to other people. Third, then make your determination from that, like like circling the wagons and taking in the best insights from everything there, really standing on the shoulders of the giants of the faith that have walked devoutly in, in, in prayer, in humility, in sincerity uh, long, long before you, just as people coming after you will stand on your shoulders. So this is the same process of exploration that I took in studying the baptism of the Holy Spirit several years ago. And and actually, I went one step farther. At the time I was a young pastor, I found myself preaching verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, through the book of Acts. That really lasted over the course of about a one-year period. And I continued bumping into the verses that we just walked through in the previous episodes. After realizing that my life experience didn't match with what's taught in the scripture and done, what's performed, the actions that they take in the Bible, I leaned in deeper, just like I was taught to do in graduate school. I began reading outside the biblical text, exploring what others had said, and then I took this additional step. I sat face to face and listened to pastors throughout my city with different theological backgrounds speak to me about those scriptures and their relationship with the Holy Spirit. These were all devout men. They were were all men. They were steeped in Scripture, and they were fervent in their heart for Jesus. I was actually, here's the result, shocked by what I found. I'd assumed that I would find a lot of disagreement. I was speaking with Baptist people, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Charismatic, people from a vineyard church. I, you name it, I was speaking to assemblies of God, people all over the theological landscape, even non-denominational leaders. 
when I was younger, I kind of freaked out anytime I saw people raising their hands in worship. The topic of the Holy Spirit always made me nervous, particularly as I'd heard so many people talk about Him in ways that themselves they, they couldn't find in Scripture. I, I was kind of like the disciples in Ephesus that I referenced in the previous episode who conceded, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Some of the people who made me anxious were people of whom I might, even wrongly, judge, saying they don't seem to have ever even heard of the Bible. But, but get this, despite all those fears, I found massive areas of agreement on the topic. For instance, here's some of what I've discovered. Uh, Bill Bright, he, he was born in 1921. He died in 2003. He's the now deceased founder of Campus Crusade, which was the powerhouse nonprofit behind the Jesus film. You might remember that. It was responsible for taking the gospel to, now get this, six billion people during his lifetime. He wrote two popular tracks during his ministry. The first, The Four Spiritual Laws, leads people in a salvation conversion experience. I'd been trained with other people in our Southern Baptist Church to lead people to faith using that. It was a pale orange, tiny booklet that would fit in the pocket of your pants. I actually talked to you about that in one of the introduction uh, episodes to this whole Life Lift series that I'm doing on the podcast. Now, Bill Bright, he also published a blue pamphlet. It was a companion volume titled The Spirit-Filled Life. It was designed to lead people into a new intimacy with the Holy Spirit, much like I've been describing happening in the book of Acts. Now, Bill Bright, he wrote this. He, He wrote in that book, We cannot successfully live the Christian life in our own strength. The Father has sent the Holy Spirit to empower us. We are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, he made a point upon which we can all agree. Every pastor that I spoke to agreed on this. We need desperately the Spirit's filling. Andrew Murray, uh, 1828 to 1917, he was another author that I saw sitting on numerous Baptist pastor shelves. His devotional books were also featured predominantly at Lifeway. That was formerly known as the Baptist Bookstore. It is now simply an online store. But, but in my mind, with my background, because of that Baptist connection, that meant that I could trust him. In his book, Experiencing the Holy Spirit, he wrote this. Long quote here. This book brings a simple but solemn message. The one thing needed for the church in its search for spiritual excellence is to be filled with the Spirit of God. In order to secure this message and attract the hearts of my readers to its blessing, I've laid particular emphasis on certain main points. Now, he lists four. Here they are. Number one, the will of God for every one of his children is that they live entirely and unceasingly under the control of the Holy Spirit. Number two, Without being filled with the Spirit, it is impossible for an individual Christian or a church to ever live or work as God desires. Number three, in the life and experience of Christians, this blessing is little used and little searched for. Number four, God waits to give us this blessing, and in our faith, we may expect it with the greatest confidence. Now, notably, Andrew Murray is quoted at length by Baptist and Presbyterian groups, and he spent time in Scotland when both denominations have deep roots. However, Murray rejected the steep rationalism that dominated the churches through his home country of the Netherlands. His parents were missionaries to South Africa, and Murray felt missions was, here's the quote, the chief end of the church. 
Of course, mere reasoning wouldn't achieve that task. The church, in his estimation, needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice this. Notice what he said in the same work that he referenced uh, just a few minutes ago. He made a distinction about knowing about the Holy Spirit and living with an ongoing encounter like the disciples nurtured throughout Scripture. He encouraged the second. He didn't want you to just know about the Holy Spirit. He wanted you to know the Holy Spirit. here's Here's a quote. It's my desire to bring to the children of God the message that there is a twofold Christian life. The one is that in which we experience something of the operations of the Holy Spirit, just as many did under the Old Covenant, but we do not yet receive Him as the Pentecostal Spirit, as the personal indwelling guest. On the other hand, there is a more abundant life in which the indwelling just referenced is to be known and experienced. When Christians come to fully understand the distinction between these two conditions, they will find the will of God concerning them. There are two ways in which the Holy Spirit works in us. The first is the preparatory operation in which He simply acts on us, but does not yet take up His abode within us, though leading us to conversion and faith by urging us to all that is good and holy. The second is that higher and more advanced phase of His working when we receive Him as an abiding gift, as an indwelling person who assumes responsibility for our whole inner being. This is the ideal of the full Christian life. That's in the book, Experiencing the Holy Spirit. Now, R.C. Sproul, uh, he was born 1939, died 2017. He was another popular theologian, a pastor and writer whom I trusted. He was ordained through the Presbyterian Church of America and had authored numerous popular books. He determined that according to the book of Acts, and this is going to be a quote from his book, The Mystery of the Holy Spirit. Here's the quote. Uh, One, People were believers and thus born of the Spirit prior to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This indicates that there must be a distinction between the Spirit's work of regeneration and the Spirit's work in baptizing. Number two, still quoting R.C. Sproul, there is a time gap between faith, regeneration, and Holy Spirit baptism. This clearly indicates that while some Christians have the Holy Spirit to the degree that they are regenerate, they may still lack the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is subsequent. Now, notice that he wrote exactly what we saw in the stories in Acts that we reviewed in episode 9 or part 9 of this Life With series. R.C. Sproul continued this after talking about kind of that twofold conversion, Holy Spirit, and then subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit. He, He continues, When we consider the current debate about the baptism of the Holy Spirit between advocates of neo-Pentecostal theology and advocates of traditional theology, we see that there's no significant argument concerning point number one. Point number one is that there were believers that were born of the Holy Spirit um, conversion prior to spirit baptism. All right, so he, he continues the quote here. Virtually all Christian denominations have agreed that there is a vast difference between the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration, though all do not fully agree on the understanding of regeneration, and the Holy Spirit's work of baptism. That is, though difference abides in the understanding of regeneration and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there is agreement that whatever each entails, now get, get this, here's his quote, each one, each activity is different from the other. That's the end of the quote. Now, 
when I look at this, I love the sincerity he expressed in that final sentence. He acknowledged that we may disagree on what to label the experience, and we may disagree as to what actually happens, but he admits and owns that there is something more apart from salvation. Uh, Billy Graham. Uh, everybody in the world knows Billy Graham, 1918 to 2018. He had a 300-page book entitled The Holy Spirit, and he made a great analogy which provides us with more insight here relevant to our conversation. He, he wrote this, Our home is supplied by a reservoir fed by two mountain springs. These two springs on the mountain above the house, according to the mountain people who lived here before we did, never fluctuate. Rainy season or dry, they remain the same. We draw on the water as we need it, and the springs continually flowing into the reservoir keep it filled to overflowing. This is literally what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. All Christians are committed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Anything short of the Spirit-filled Christian life is less than God's plan for each believer. End quote. Notice that the great American preacher the evangelist, he said that our encounter with the Holy Spirit is to be ongoing. That, that is, it's not a one-and-done-at-salvation type of experience. Now, he continued in the same book. Let me just read some more of it to you. What does the Bible mean when it speaks of the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's define the fullness of the Spirit. To be Spirit-filled is to be controlled or dominated by the Spirit's presence and power. I think it is proper to say that anyone who is not Spirit-filled is a defective Christian. Paul's command to the Ephesian Christians, be filled with the Spirit, is binding on all of us Christians everywhere in every age. There are no exceptions. We must conclude that since we are ordered to be filled with the Spirit, we are sinning if we are not filled. And our failure to be filled with the Holy Spirit constitutes one of the greatest sins against the Holy Spirit. End quote. Now, I read those to you because those are just a few of the authors from various perspectives that I tried to pull together. There was another one. His name's Doug Bannister. He had an incredible book, The Word and Power Church. Very helpful. And he presented the ideas of the Holy Spirit from a historical point of view. In that text, Bannister, he pulled together the best from what I would term as what he says are word head traditions and the best from experience heart tradition. So maybe just mark those in your, just kind of in your in your thoughts there, word head or heart experience. Now by his own admission, he was raised in a word head tradition. That's, that's kind of how I was raised, where you equate Christianity with learning more information uh, as opposed to experiencing more in worship. Now, he was in a denomination where the study of Scripture was primary and experience heart wasn't really trusted. Um, or to say it another way, he, he was uh, more like the early Apollos that I referenced in one of the previous episodes where he, he was really walking in this information type stage. So here, here's what happened. Bannister studied this, and he concluded that we need both. We need the word head, and we need the experience heart. It's, it's not an either or, it's a both and. He calls the melding of these two a word and power church, a church that's rich in scripture and full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And he argues again that we need both. We need the word, the head, and the spirit, heart and power. He, he writes this. Here's a quote from his book. I'm convinced that the great majority of middle-of-the-road evangelicals and charismatics basically believe the same thing about the work of the Holy Spirit. 
We merely use different words to describe how the Spirit works in our lives. And it continues, Can the Holy Spirit encounter us in a powerful way after salvation? Of course He can. Do we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis? Of course we do. Word and power churches seek both kinds of experiences. Now, Bannister recounts how he was extremely suspicious of any secondary work, deeper work, second blessing, anything subsequent, certainly anything labeled a baptism that didn't happen a pool of water. He went further than I did in my journey, though, whereas I grabbed a few resources that I just read you from trusted sources and then spoke to a group of pastors, Bannister decided to consult church history to see what saints wrote over the past 2,000 years on the subject. Although they all used really different terms, different words to describe their encounters, he found a sampling of people that actually said very much the same thing. I'm, I'm going to give you some quotes from his book. This is from the Word and Power Church. It's, it's about page 165 and following. Uh, here, here it is, a, a couple bullet points, and then I'll make some comments on the way. North Africa, 3rd century. The theologian Tertullian teaches that the Holy Spirit is received after conversion through prayer and the laying on of hands. Asia, 10th century. Simeon, the new theologian, describes in the third person his encounter with the Holy Spirit. One day, a flood of divine radiance appeared from above and filled the room, he says. He was wounded by love and desired for God. Oblivious of all the world, he was filled with tears and ineffable joy and gladness. Italy, 15th century. Savonarola, a monk with a heart to reform the church, he begins preaching stirring messages on the coming judgment of God. Few people respond. Then one day, while speaking with a nun, he has a vision. From that moment on, his biographer tells us, here's a quote, he was filled with new unction and power. His preaching was now with the voice of thunder and his denunciation of sin so terrific that the people who listened to him sometimes went about the streets half-dazed, end quote. England, 16th century, the Puritans teach the doctrine of the sealing of the Spirit as a distinct work that happens after conversion. Puritan divine Thomas Goodwin, he writes in his commentary on Ephesians 1.13, the work of faith is a distinct thing, a different thing from the work of assurance. Goodwin describes this second work as, quote, the electing love of God brought home to the soul. Now, throughout modern history, there are others who claim to have experienced something secondary too, and Bannister also pointed those out. Let me give you a few examples of those, maybe four more examples. You'll recognize some of these names more than the previous. Um, England, 18th century John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. He teaches that every believer should expect two distinct experiences in their sanctification. He calls the second experience a second blessing. Uh, England, 19th century, the higher life movement grows rapidly, made popular by the Keswick conventions of the 1870s. Uh, leading Bible teachers such as R.A. Torrey, uh, D.L. Moody, uh, Andrew Murray, we just referenced him, and F.B. Meyer teach that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a secondary crisis experience empowering the believer for service. Tory, who was Moody's disciple, writes in his book, The Baptism with the Holy Spirit, and here's, here's the quote, this is the work of the Holy Spirit separate and distinct from his regenerating work. 
Another example, uh, Chicago, 19th century, the evangelist Dwight Moody, who founded Moody Bible Church and Moody Bible Institute, uh, writes two months before his death in 1899, and here's the quote, There are two epics in my life that stand out clear. One is when I was between 18 and 19 years old, when I was born of the Spirit. The greatest blessing next to being born again came 16 years after when I was filled with the Holy Spirit. Final example, uh, from England, 20th century. Perhaps the most surprising spokesman for a second work teaching is the great British preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones, who served London's Westminster Chapel. Now, I've I've been there. I've seen that one. Uh, Very formal. He served Westminster Chapel for 25 years, has a major influence on evangelicals, yet Lloyd-Jones saw in scriptures a baptism in the Holy Spirit that was distinct from conversion. He writes, You can be regenerate, a child of God, a true believer, and still not have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, to be clear, that those were all quoted from Doug Bannister's book, The Word and Power Church. And what I'm getting at is, is clearly seeking this secondary intimacy with the Holy Spirit, it is a mainstream idea, particularly when we get down to the core of why Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit. In, in other words, what I'm saying is many people in Christendom have been wrestling with these ideas for centuries, but no one talks about them, perhaps because there's a little bit of fear of being misunderstood, being labeled in the wrong way, or even genuinely not wanting to err theologically or biblically. So the question then is, why Why does it all matter? And, and here's, here's what I would say really as we start wrapping up this episode. There are a few reasons why I believe it's important, the Holy Spirit and this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this secondary encounter, this filling, this ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit, however you want to term that, it's not primarily an experience or even about speaking in tongues. It's that the Holy Spirit provides at least three things that I want to highlight. Number one is greater focus on Jesus. Number two is power for witness. Number three is increased intimacy with the Lord. Now, let let me review each of these. Number one, first, the Holy Spirit provides us with a greater focus on Jesus, not an increased focus on the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you visit a church and they emphasize the Holy Spirit over Jesus, they've gotten it backwards. According to the Bible, Jesus always reveals the Father. In fact, Jesus said that himself. We, we reviewed that in talk number one and talk number two of this series. The Holy Spirit, though, always highlights Jesus. John the Baptist said that Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. That was in John 1.33, and he said that in Luke 3.16. Jesus confirmed this. He told the disciples that when he went away, that he would send them the Holy Spirit. So he he says, I'm going to do what John said I would do. He said that in John 14, 16 and following, John 16, 5, Acts 1, 5. So this was a repeating thing that he said over and over, not just just kind of a one-off sentence. So it becomes the ascension, Jesus ascending to heaven and taking his throne, that makes this possible. Um, Peter actually says that in Acts 2.33, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of the Father, he poured out this that you now see and hear. In other words, 
In the same way that Jesus' work makes salvation possible, so also does Jesus' work make the gift of the Holy Spirit possible. It's his work on the cross that makes salvation possible. It's his work ascending to his throne that makes pouring out the Holy Spirit possible. Furthermore, the first reason Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, according to him, was to replace his presence with the disciples. He would no longer be physically near them, but he promised he would not leave them orphaned. That's in John 16, 6 through 8. The Holy Spirit would come and teach and lead them in the way, in the same way that Jesus had done. He, he promised that and explained that in John 16, 12 through 15. In lieu of Jesus being there in front of them then, the Holy Spirit would be the presence of God with them. So the Holy Spirit becomes one with them. And the Holy Spirit becomes one with us at salvation. That's in 1 Corinthians 6, 17 through 19. And Romans 5, 5 tells us the love of the Holy Spirit has been poured out in our hearts. In fact, Paul actually says it like this. Our hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now the word used there for poured out, it's the same word in the Greek language used of a cascading waterfall. That is the extent to which God lavishes himself upon us. It is an unending tidal wave. And you might think back to the springs in the mountain that Billy Graham referenced earlier in that quote. Is that the Spirit transforms us from the inside out, planting seeds which grow into the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. As we begin living the presence of Christ in us, our character and our countenance look more and more like His. We start resembling him and resembling more of that image in the mirror that we discussed in talk number two of the series. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't just give you gifts. The Holy Spirit also comes to make you feel the intense love of Christ and then to express yourself and express Christ living through you. Jesus is the focus. And when we reveal his character more and more, we do so as we live and see that reflection in the mirror, all something that the Spirit empowers us to do, the focus again being Jesus. Second of all, the Holy Spirit provides us increased power for witness. The Holy Spirit was and is, continues to be, given by Jesus in order to empower his people to preach and to do miracles so that people are saved. Now, the first time we see that is in Acts 2.38. Peter says that's why the Holy Spirit was given. As the Spirit is poured out after Jesus ascends his throne, this Holy Spirit is literally the empowerment of an enthroned king giving tools and resources to its people in order to assist them in fulfilling his orders. Now, I, I realize that that term baptism, that, that word baptism, as in baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's a scary word, particularly because it's been misused so often. But it's a great word for what happens when we encounter the Holy Spirit in this way. Think about water baptism for just a moment. When someone emerges from the baptismal pool, they're drenched. There's not only an internal change in what's happening with them, something's different externally. Unless they dry off, anyone who comes in contact with them will get wet. And sometimes you see that. They jump out of the pool and they start hugging their friends and family. And all of a sudden, water's not just on the baptized person. Water's on all of the people who were near the baptized. 
The same is true of this subsequent encounter with the Holy Spirit. When somebody comes in contact with a person who's experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they should immediately sense the Holy Spirit, just as you would feel water on someone who stepped from a pool. Again, there's not just an internal change of the fruit of the Spirit emerging in our lives. There's an external change as that fruit overflows and as the gifts of the Spirit begin expressing themselves. Uh, think back through some of the examples that I've shared with you in some of the previous talks in this series. Um, Peter, he transformed from a weak man who denied Christ to a teenage servant girl who met him in the courtyard while Jesus was on trial into a bold preacher who led the apostles in the upper room prayer meeting. And then he proclaimed the gospel such that 3,000 people were saved all in an instant. And if you want to compare those verses, just look up Luke twenty-two fifty-four along with Acts 1.15 and Acts 2.14. Paul, after his encounter with the Holy Spirit, he grew, according to Acts 9.22, here's the quote, more and more powerful. Now, the miracles and healings, they all became such a significant part of the declaration of the gospel in the New Testament that people in the world actually took notice of this, not just internal character change, but this external change. They said, for instance, I referenced this a couple weeks ago from Acts 14, 11. They said the gods had come down among them after they saw two disciples heal a crippled man. They said that the world had been turned upside down, according to Acts 17, 6. Um, and another example you see is that God did such extraordinary miracles that people were being healed by passing shadows. Uh, that's in Acts 5:15 and handkerchiefs that were passed from a disciple to someone who is ill. That's in Acts 19.11. So even when you see that today from a televangelist or you see kind of a counterfeit of that somewhere, there was actually an original authentic that happened somewhere back in time. One pastor I read, uh, Bill Johnson, uh, in his book, Release the Power of Jesus, he says this, it's too easy to reduce Jesus' teaching to what is humanly possible. But then he goes on and he says, Scripture doesn't allow us to do that. When that subsequent encounter occurs, that baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit moves not just in the person, doesn't just take up residence inside of us, the Holy Spirit moves on the person. Something external happens. No longer is Christ simply in us. He moves through us to touch the world. He's now on us. So people don't just see an image of him. They actually encounter him living and serving among them, particularly as we not only do what he would do, but we do it how he would do it with love, with, with power. And this happens profoundly as the gifts of the Spirit are expressed through us. Now, in the show notes, I want you to take a look. I provided you with a picture of the salvation encounter and what happens when the Holy Spirit moves in us. And just there, I've got a graphic that shows the Holy Spirit moves in and there's this internal change and we release the fruit of the Spirit. I've got a graphic I want you to see too in the notes where it talks about the subsequent encounter or subsequent encounters, because I'm using the plural there, because there may be a baptism of the Holy Spirit, or there may be filling of the Holy Spirit, or fillings of the Holy Spirit. Like I, I think that the theological boxes that we create are so small that God can't be contained by any of those. And we see the subsequent encounter or encounters 
having the, the result being that the Holy Spirit comes on us, there's this external change, and the gifts of the Spirit begin operating in our lives. Now, I've also put this chart down in the show notes where you can see the difference between the salvation encounter and the subsequent encounter. And it just really breaks down like this. At conversion, Jesus becomes Lord, but with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Jesus empowers me to proclaim him and to provide this supernatural witness. At salvation, I think it's really for you. Like your life, my life, changes. But when the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes, really that's not for us. That's for others. It's for ministry. And now we are empowered to help others change. Uh, With the salvation conversion encounter, my primary change, it's internal. It's seen by others, but ideally it's my character that changes. With the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it is an external change. And remember the baptism of water imagery where it's it's outside of you. There's an internal reality, but there's so much happening also outside. With, with the conversion encounter, with salvation, um, my character changes. I have a new nature, but with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, my ministry changes. My service elevates. I experience God's power. Salvation, the Holy Spirit releases the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit move into my life. My relationship with God at salvation, I now know God. At the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I now make God known. One characterization is that the encounter is for salvation, maybe identified by peace with God. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is identified by power from God. And I would say these are because salvation, Jesus came down and faced the cross. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is because Jesus ascended and took the throne. Finally, let me give you this last observation. I think the third point is this. The Holy Spirit provides us with this increased intimacy with the Lord. That is, we we experience a heightened awareness of the Lord's acute nearness. Now, He's always close. Never will I leave you or forsake you, he says. But there becomes this awareness. Go back to Acts 1 with me. Before the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the disciples cast lots in the upper room to determine who the next apostle will be. That's in Acts 1.26. That was not because they were random or happen chance in their selection, like the toss of a coin at the beginning of a football game. Rather, this was the exact method historically used to select the priesthood as well as the people who would be set apart for special tasks. So an example would be even in Luke 1.9 when Zechariah is cast by lot to be the priest to go in and offer incense before the Lord and is told that his wife Elizabeth, who's been barren, will have John the Baptist, a son. After the baptism of the Holy Spirit, okay, and again, this is after the baptism, The disciples have already had a conversion encounter, but after, they no longer cast lots. They, in fact, we never see the casting of lots in Scripture ever again. Rather, the Holy Spirit simply speaks to them as He speaks to friends. So, here are a few examples. The Lord tells Ananias in Acts 9.10 to go minister to Paul. Uh, Peter is given instruction to go to Cornelius' home in Acts 10.13. The Lord in Acts 13.2 tells the church leaders who he wants them to send on a mission trip. So hopefully all of these ideas 
start fitting together and you begin seeing that the Holy Spirit comes and it's, it's not just this internal change that's character. It's not just this external change that's ministry. There is this increased acute awareness of intimacy, of knowing Him, of knowing His direction for your life. With that, let me sign off. We'll continue the conversation and go a little bit farther in the next episode where we'll talk about this idea of the written and living expression of who God is and how that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. My prayer for you until that time is that the Lord would bless you, that he would keep you, that he'd be gracious to you, that he'd shine his face of favor upon you, that you would see, sense, and feel the nearness, the acute hyper nearness of the Holy Spirit, not just speaking to you in scripture as he so eloquently does because he pent, he breathed in the scripture, not just speaking to you through friends, although he does because one of the greatest gifts that you have is the relationships with the people whom he's given you as gifts in your life. But may you see, sense, feel, and hear his voice. Jesus says of you, my sheep know me, and they hear my voice. May you hear him this week. Grace, peace, until next time. Shalom.